0: Welcome to the Elevate Your Event podcast, where we talk about how to plan and execute an unforgettable event that will dazzle your guests and generate more income for your organization. From fundraising and securing trendy auction items to event production and logistics, get the best tips and advice from seasoned fundraising and event professionals who have been in your shoes.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our panel. My name is Mavidi Grasha, and I serve as an NXUnite team member at Nexus Marketing and your moderator for today's panel. Today's panel topic is creating unforgettable experiences, expert advice, and fundraising events. I'd like to first introduce Jeff. Porter, who is the founder and CEO at Handbid. He's no stranger to fundraising events, having participated in them for over 25 years. He ran his first fundraiser in 2005 and has managed over 50 auction events and fundraisers for his own charities, not to mention hundreds more with Handbid. Thanks for joining us, Jeff.
2: Thanks, Malou. Happy to be here.
1: Also with us is Lauren Batterby, who is the founder and CEO at Life Event Staffing. They provide specialized auction staff for fundraising and corporate events across North America, serving both United States and Canada. With over 10 years of industry experience, Lauren's expertise lies in fundraising events and silent auction technology. So glad to have you, Lauren. Thanks, Malay. I'm happy to be here. Also with us today is Scott Rosevear, who is the president and co-founder at RiskFreeItemShop.com. Understanding fundraising from the lens of a nonprofit executive and technology founder has given him unique insights into how to solve some of the key issues facing nonprofits in an ever-changing tech-centric world. So great to have you, Scott.
3: Thanks, Malou. Great to be here.
1: And finally, with us is Tony Banks, who is the founder and CEO at Tony Banks Consulting. He's all about creating unforgettable experiences and has spent over 15 years developing effective events and stewardship strategies to drive engagement and income generation in the third sector and local government. Thanks for joining us, Tony.
4: Thanks, Naleh. Great to see you, everyone.
1: All right. Now it's finally time to hear from our panelists and Jeff, I'll have you start us off with the first question. In your opinion, what are the key elements that distinguish a successful fundraising event from other types of events and how can nonprofits ensure these elements are integrated into their event planning?
2: Sure. In terms of how I interpreted the question, you know, at a successful event versus other types of events or a successful fundraising event in you know, I would say in terms of or in, in difference to a non-successful fundraising event, I would say to make it successful, one, you need a clear goal. I think that goal needs to be realistic and it needs to be communicated, not just within the team, but also with the folks that are attending the event. And in a lot of cases, I think what we tend to see is that the goals aren't specific enough. And they're also not realistic in a lot of cases. And I also see sometimes realistic can mean not even nearly high enough, like way too conservative of a goal. And so you need to be, you know, I would say, aggressive enough and stretch enough to get your donors to see that they need to maybe reach a little bit deeper in their pockets. So that's one element that we see a lot of times. I think Tony will probably speak to this as well. I think it needs to be engaging. It needs to be fun. The event needs to have interactive elements to it that are going to engage the audience and kind of get them connected to it. Uh, I think you need to recognize those in the room, not just the ones that are donating, but also the ones that are there volunteering and helping you uh, put the event on. And then I think once you're in there, you need to explain to people how their dollars are going to impact whatever program services you're applying them to. And also what's at stake um, if you don't receive those donations. I think that's as equally as important. Um, and then, you know, obviously, I wouldn't be here in um, running a tech company if I didn't tell you that you can use technology effectively to drive better donor engagement and also make it much easier for people to donate at your event.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much for starting us off, Jeff. Scott, I'm going to bring the same question over to you. What makes a fundraising event successful, and how can nonprofits make sure these elements are part of their event planning?
3: That's uh, a great question. And I think when you look at consumer behaviors. You know, people buy things practically usually, you know, on Amazon, whatever it is, but they donate emotionally, they come from an emotional part. And when you look at a lot of these events, people focus sometimes on the logistics too much, or those types of things that aren't really telling the story. So, you know, when I see successful events, it's how do you how do you engage the audience from an emotional level? How do you pull their heartstrings? Whether it's and that's from like invitations all the way to the event, whether it's showing a story for fun and need or whatever that is, whatever your cause is. Obviously, some are harder than others, but any human services, especially, you know, how are you? Where is this dollar going? How can it help this cause or this child or this family? What's that one-to-one nature where it's an emotional dollar going in and getting that kind of response back? that you're making a difference as opposed to just bidding on an item or donating into a general fund. I think that's one thing people can bring in that emotional connection aspect.
1: Wonderful. Thanks, Scott. Lauren, over to you. What makes fundraising events successful and how to integrate these elements into event planning?
0: Thanks, Malone. I thought a lot about this one because there were so many points. And just like um, Jeff and Scott mentioned, I feel like we could go on and on and on. So I'm going to go the exact opposite. And I think it's simplicity. You cannot build upon complexity, right? So if you start with your key main points, and this is no matter what size of event you are, what size of nonprofit the, the, that you are, look at your key demographics of your target audience and then prioritize what you think it is that that are the most important features of of that event. And then narrowing it down to the top five, maybe, maybe even less, okay? And then is it, and work out then the organizational side of it. How many people do you have on your team? How many hats is that each individual wearing? They can't do 20 things fantastically, but they can each do three things fantastically. So really sort of rein it in and think about it before you start anything, you know, those, key fundraising parts, what are the top three? Who's going to be best at being able to to delegate that? I mean, at the end of the day, again, going along the lines of simplicity, you don't want your guests to want for anything. You actually don't want them to even leave their seat once they are in it. You can still keep them entertained. They can still keep giving. You can feed them, you can water them, you can do everything at their fingertips. And the simplest way to achieve that It is the most seamless, stress-free, successful event and you will be remembered and that will keep your recurring donors coming back next year.
1: Fantastic point, Lauren. All right, Tony, final thoughts on what makes fundraising events successful and how to include these elements in their planning.
4: Thanks, Malou. Yeah, I completely agree with Lauren, Scott and Jeff's points. Um, When I was thinking about this question, there was three key things that stood out for me. So the first was around acquisition. And I think working with a lot of charity clients at the moment, what I see is that event organisers and fundraisers don't necessarily see events as an acquisition tool. And when I talk about that, I mean becoming less transactional. So what we're seeing a lot of at the moment is people trying to get people to attend your event, get them to register, get them to donate on the night. And that is essentially the end of the journey. What we're going to do to see more success from charity fundraising moving forward is where we see events as a way to acquire supporters and create lifetime value from those supporters. So it's actually a question around what do we do with them after the event? How do we take them on a journey and get them to continue to support the charity beyond the night of the event itself or the day of the event, of course? So how can we continue to engage them beyond the event? The second thing I wanted to talk about was stewardship, and that's how we can engage them, creating those incredible experiences. I'm talking about this I really stress to everybody I work with that the stewardship must be both pre, during and post events. So thinking about that acquisition element again, how do we continue to get people to support us after the event that they've attended? That's through excellent stewardship. So engaging them with brilliant storytelling, which was the final thing that I wanted to say, telling the story about your charity, as Scott mentioned, connecting them emotionally to your cause. But most importantly, telling people why they should donate, what's the impact of their donation on your charity, on your not for profit, what difference is that going to make? So, by using effective storytelling, create a great stewardship journey, which is going to require you new donors. Hopefully, you take on a lifetime journey with your charity.
1: Wonderful. Thanks, Tony. All right, we're off to a great start. And Lauren, I'll have you start us off with the next question What valuable lessons have the past few years taught us about events, and how should nonprofits apply these lessons to future events? I
0: think I'm gonna start with the most obvious again here is the fact that we can reach wider audiences remotely. I think every industry experienced that throughout the pandemic. And I I now believe that it really has built people's confidence within technology, again, across all areas, even been able to have a call like this. You know, they can get their board members on webinars. We don't need these live meetings anymore. So even when you're holding that live event, you can still engage your bidders from outside of the room. All these mobile bidding platforms are cloud-based. You can bid from your phone. You can watch your event live. You know, so these small chapters of each nonprofit can now reach the entire of the U.S. or even worldwide if needed. So... I think we really need to start trusting our know, technologies even more and showing that you you really can reach those much wider audiences to be able to, to spread your word. So, again, the use of technology across all industries to be able to rein in those people, grasp the hearts of, of your audience, help spread the word and do it easily and very cost effectively at the same time.
1: Thanks Lauren. Great. Tony, over to you. Any lessons learned about events and how to apply these to future events?
4: Yeah, sure. Thank you. I I think um, I'd absolutely love to build on what Lauren was just talking about. And for me, I think one of the big things that we've learned over the last few years, particularly thinking about post-pandemic events, is accessibility and how important that is in running any charity event that we host. So gone are the days now of you have to be there in person Gone are the days of you can't attend an event because you're on the side of the country. Events should be fully inclusive and accessible. And I think this is what we're starting to see now. We're seeing this ability through the use of clever technology, but also just the simple things that charities and nonprofits can do to include all audiences. We're not excluding people anymore, or we shouldn't be by any means. And that is helping charities to grow their audiences, reach new donors, and take them on journeys beyond the event itself. So accessibility for me was the absolute key thing that came out of the pandemic. And that's something we continue to develop and grow through useful tech, through innovation, and and great tools that are available to us.
1: Thanks, Tony. All right, Jeff, same question over to you. What Have we learned from recent years about events and how to apply these to future ones?
2: Yeah, these are good answers. And just kind of build on what Tony and Lauren were saying. If I go back prior to the pandemic, even all the way back to 2011, when we ran our first handbid auction, you know, we would always hear, well, this is who my bitter base is. They're an older crowd. They're not tech savvy. They're not able to do these things. And I think what the pandemic taught everybody is actually your guests are capable of using technology to engage, you know, with your event, you know, whether they're there in person or not. Um, they're still able and willing to do it. And we always saw that when we would go to events, but people were always, I think, in the background convinced that that wasn't true. Um, I think the other thing we saw in connection with that is that your guests are, to Tony's point about an event becoming an entry point to a relationship with a donor, you have to get information from that person when they walk in the door. I think what people started to learn was, is that your guests are actually willing to give you their information we see this a lot of times with celebrities. Oh, they don't want to give you their email. Actually they do. You know, I know they're a celebrity, but they actually do want a receipt, you know, and they want an email to them. So, you know, I think there a lot of times charities kind of step in and say, well, I don't think my guests are going to be comfortable providing their address or their credit card number. And that's just simply not true. Um, And I think it, It backfires on those individuals who say, I'm going to pre-register all my guests with fake information because I think I'm going to speed up a check-in process by putting paddle numbers on tables only to find that I have no way of reaching these people after the event is over because I don't have any of their accurate information. So I think that's another one that we've seen. I would also say one of the key mistakes or one of the lessons learned that I think we've seen is you have to be willing to listen to what... The folks that you're paying to come in and help you are telling you to do. I think people are a little bit more willing now to give up some of those sacred cows. That's what we like to call them back in the commercial world, right? These are, we always did it this way. and We want to continue to do it that way. Well, when you start making changes, when you start moving things from a physical event world to a hybrid event or a virtual event world, certain things are going to change. When I start implementing technology, maybe there is a better way to check in your guests. You know, maybe there is a better way to conduct your paddle raise. And so when you try to kind of force some of the older methods into that, sometimes that will backfire on you. And it's not necessarily a limitation of the software. It's just that the software might have been built around a different or maybe even arguably a better method for doing that particular task.
1: Thanks, Jeff. All right, Scott, over to you. What Would you like to add to lessons learned and how to apply them in future events?
3: Yeah, I mean, what's left to say? But absolutely, you know, technology is whether you like it or not. You know, nonprofits were forced to adopt it probably faster than they wanted to, as well as their donors. And like everyone said, it was actually received better than they thought. But what we've seen is, you know, when people have in person coming back, you know, there is more success typically versus a virtual only event. You know, let's just be honest. So I think a lot of people have just thrown out the virtual which is I think a big mistake. So adding the hybrid part, but what we've seen also is let's take the next step. Let's have seasonal fundraisers because if you think about it, why don't people have more than one gala fundraiser a year? It's expensive. It's like planning a wedding, right? So why don't we do something that's almost free or free and do like a mother's day fundraiser or back to school, whatever it is, you can really add, you know, consistency as opposed to a one and done using virtual, you know, a, a hand platform that says strong that can do these virtual events kind of between your big events can be a huge win, especially as you're trying to attract the younger audience.
1: All right, here's our next question. And Tony, I'll have you start us off with this one. How can nonprofits make their fundraising events more exciting, engaging, memorable, and ultimately more profitable?
4: Oh, wow. I could speak for hours on this one. I really could. I promise you I won't. I'll try and be brief, but you know, this is, this is what it's all about, right? Standing out from the crowd. And I think that's, that's one of the key things here. There are hundreds thousands of charities all over the world, many doing the same things as your cause. So actually it can become quite competitive to stand out from that crowded marketplace. So what can we do to make our events more unique? unforgettable, create these amazing experiences for our guests and our donors. There's a whole host of things you can do, but some of the things that I wanted to share, some examples I think are brilliant. So thinking about unique ways to get people to donate, They're again, using technology, using social media, some of the things that are available to us, not necessarily always at a huge cost. There's a brilliant charity here in the UK called Blue Cross. They're an animal charity. Their beneficiaries are dogs and cats and animals. They actually put tap to donate contactless devices on their volunteer dogs. So when the donors came along to their events, they're able to tap and actually engage directly with the beneficiaries of the charity. Just a brilliant, unique way to engage your donors and get them to donate. Again, Stand Up To Cancer, a huge charity here in the UK, do some amazing work. Did a brilliant scheme where they had donation rewards on social media. Again, something really simple. They were able to engage people by asking people to donate five, ten pounds, dollars, whatever it was. And by doing that, they gave a reward. Often that reward was something that didn't cost them any money whatsoever. It was comical, it was engaging, and it got people to donate with a with a, a value exchange. The other thing I wanted to just mention, when I mentioned earlier on about impactful stories, creating ways to immerse people and tell your charity story is so, so key, I think, and really helps you stand out from that crowded marketplace. There's a great example from the WWF. They ran a campaign to try and raise funds for their seagrass conservation project. And actually, they ran a very small event, an in-person event, where they took some of their highest value donors scuba diving in Wales, in the UK, to actually see that seagrass in person, in real life. So it was an event that was so unique and led to hundreds of thousands of pounds being donated to that campaign, in particular, because the charity was immersing and telling stories in the most real way possible. And then the other thing I just talked to a lot of my clients around is the five senses theory. So when we're running an event, whether that's virtual or in person, how do we try to engage all of the five senses? Quite often you find a lot of not-for-profits that run events will engage one or two of the senses. So they'll concentrate predominantly on how things look or how things sound. But actually the best events are those events that engage all of the senses. So how do we think about the way things smell at your event? What is it around people, things that people can touch at your event, taste, and hear and see? Engaging all of those senses is a really unique way and a perspective to look at how we can create these incredible, unforgettable events.
1: That's wonderful. Thanks for sharing, Tony. All right, Lauren, on to you. Any insights on how to create exciting, engaging, and profitable fundraising events?
0: Yeah, I'm going to give a, a real life example for you at the moment, especially on the engaging. Part of it. So I have an 18 month old, so a toddler, and it was the holiday market. So it wasn't an annual sit down dinner, annual holiday market. Fantastic way of bringing local people together to promote shop local, this types of things. It was a nice open environment to have children in, until I walked into the silent auction area. Of course it's for the school. So it's full of toys. My 18-month-old grabbed a doll's foot and would not let go. She screamed bloody murder. I had to pick her up rather embarrassingly, walk out of the room. This was a paper auction. I'd managed to write my name down, very scribbled, with one child in in my arm on one sheet of paper and absolutely nothing else in the room because I had to leave. I was condemned from going back in there with the screaming child who wouldn't leave the doll alone because that was what she wanted. So I was actually unable to bid on anything else within this very small confined space with all these items there and then the pieces of paper. So my argument here is the fact that I was not able to partake because I was hindered because of my child at a school event of all the times that shouldn't have been a problem. I wasn't able to, to give, I was able to go and buy some raffle tickets that was no side table and we were safe out there. But for the actual silent auction, I know silent auctions, I enjoy them. And what a great way for me to be giving. And it was all toys geared towards children. I'm new to this area as well. So there were some great experiences for families. I missed out on all of these things, again, because I wasn't able to engage with the silent auction. However, if there had been a, a technology involved, it's something I could have taken away with me. The silent auction was open all afternoon. You know, I was only at the holiday market for about an hour. I said until the screaming child made me leave. I really doubt I was the only mother there alone with a child and a push you know, the, that had to leave because child needed a nap, nappy changing and and things like this. So that is what I mean about prioritizing, like, and thinking about the demographic of, of your target audience, the people who were there were just like me, and I felt unable to give. So it doesn't make me think less of the school or the people that were there or the type of event that it was, but it just wasn't thought through. So I, I will feedback to the school, because I do feel like they, they lost out on certain occasions for such a silly thing as a child's tantrum.
1: <laughs> Thanks for sharing, Lauren. All right, Scott, over to you. Any any tips for creating unique, engaging, and profitable fundraising events?
3: Yeah, I mean, those are great points. You know, one thing I would add, and it may be unpopular to say what I'm about to say, but understanding your audience is, I think, so key. And most a lot of nonprofits do the same thing every year, right? And but people are changing, but the events aren't. So I think understanding who your donor is at a deep level using AI, whether it's iWave, Wealth Engine, we use Boodle. You can look at not only just historical behavior habits, but predictively, you know, what is their wealth rating? You know, how much can they afford, which can really help you understand what kind of event should you put on? What are the the demographics that weren't set? You know, is this a millennial versus a boomer event? It should look very different based on your audience. You know, what are they interested in? How do they want to be communicated with? These are the kinds of things you can't just guess very well. And using AI, which is a scary term to a lot of people, the first ones I believe to embrace like donor intelligence, these kinds of predictives, and then adapt their fundraisers around that. People are going to come up, come into the event and actually go, wow, I feel like I belong here. Like, I can't believe they have these decorations, whatever it is, these items that are relevant to me and I can afford the bid ask, the fun and need, I can actually afford those levels because AIs told me how much I should be asking and when. So just getting smarter, is that's going to be the back end to create more exciting engaging events. And we've seen it time and time again.
1: Thanks, Scott. All right, Jeff, we want to hear from you as well. What would you like to add?
2: Yeah, shameless plug. So Scott and I are partners, and he's absolutely right on this one. Knowing your audience and being able to then make decisions based on that is important. It's really helpful beyond just who are the rich people in the room, because sometimes that's helpful and sometimes it's not. But what are their interests? What kind of items should you be putting up for bid based on the types of things that they're interested in bidding on? And we can, a lot of times we'll look at the back end of that, Right. And again, this is really hard to do when you're on paper bid sheets. Right. But um, if you're not, if you're using technology, just look at what people are bidding on. I walked into an auction and everybody was bidding on, you know, wine and they were bidding on trips. And I could tell you the age range of the people in the room. Okay. And the trips to the zoo and the children's museum had no bids. And so that is where you start to get an idea of what kind of audience is this. Now, had you known that in advance, maybe you you restructure some of the items that you feel are not going to appeal to an older audience or vice versa. Maybe it's a younger audience, right? Maybe it's an audience that cannot afford to go on a two-week Rhine River cruise, or probably doesn't want to go on that cruise when they're 30 because everybody else on the cruise is going to be 75. So it's understanding and kind of applying a lot of that. And Lauren, you're right. <laughs> There's a big thread going on in the chat about paper bid sheets versus mobile and what happens in you are you are not making it easy for people to connect with you and engage on paper and so when you look at why do you want to use technology and and why do people not a lot of people say i don't want to use technology because they, a, i don't want to pay for it but you have to look at it as an investment and not an expense okay there's only a few things at your event that you're going to spend money on that have the opportunity to generate more revenue it's it's definitely going to be mobile bidding software and Maybe, maybe an open bar, right, but and a live auctioneer, of course, but it's not going to be your caterer and your food and and everything else. So you can't treat it as another line item just on your budget, not understanding what the revenue lift would be, if you're going to go off and employ technology. And to Lauren's point, you know, she had a kid in one hand who's screaming, and then she's trying to write some bids down with the other hand. Hopefully, it was legible. Who knows, Right. I didn't see what you wrote down. But remember those days when we'd be staring at a bid sheet? Scott probably does. And like, is that a three? I can't tell. It might be an eight. I'm not exactly sure. So all of those things kind of play into the challenges, you know, of of not using technology. You know, and the last thing I would say is, and we just did a podcast on this. We were just brainstorming, like, where can you take events? Like, how do you make them more interesting? How do you appeal to a younger audience? Do we really, to Scott's point, like, people are changing, maybe the demographic of your donor base is changing, and you're keeping the event the same, you know, it's time to kind of change it up and we don't have to get into all the details on this particular session, but, but start thinking about it. You know, the ideas that Tony gave, you know, or the ideas that we put in that podcast episode that really start to drive more interactive, you know, experiences for people, gets them connected, gets them doing things besides just sitting in a ballroom at a table at a plate at dinner and watching plates get passed. So anyway, a lot for you guys to think about.
1: Thanks, Jeff. All right, Scott, here's our next question. What advice do you have for those ready to elevate their fundraising events but are concerned about mm-hmm. the cost?
3: Yeah, of course, especially as things get more expensive. You know, this is more relevant than ever. Tony mentioned something a couple of questions ago about, you know, creating FlatRages like an acquisition event. Yeah, this is an important topic. And I think people, cost isn't really maybe the right word. I think people want to, what's the best way to net more profitability, right? If someone says, if you give me a million dollars, you can get get $10 million back. Yeah, that'd be awesome. But the cost is higher, but what you get is more. But I think if you look at back to the paper versus technology, you know, paper bidding, it's worked for a long time. You know, it's not like it doesn't work, but we've mentioned some of the issues with it. But embracing technology, because when you look at, let's say you have 50 items and there's all these people bidding on the same thing, you only capture the one who won, really, right? The person who won. But when you bring in a technology like a hand bid, now we can actually look at everyone who didn't win. And now they're in your funnel to acquire them as not one time potential donors at one event. Now they can be lifetime donors consistently. So, using technology to gather that data, which will then just compound the data for AI, whatever else, whatever you're using, to make each event just more customized, personalized, and now you have more people to draw from. So, I think again, for me, it comes down to technology, you know, making it using a smart hybrid virtual events, and you can acquire more people and just get more information because information is what is going to drive success Mm -hmm. moving forward.
1: Absolutely. Thanks, Scott. All right, Jeff, any advice for those looking to enhance their fundraising events but have concerns over budget?
2: Yeah. Understand what is a cost center and what is not. Fundraising, investment in technology that helps you with fundraising, those are profit centers. Those are not cost centers um, when you're looking at that. A couple of tips we give folks is as you're thinking about how do you change up your event, uh, look at the venue. You know, maybe there's a an alternative. Maybe it's time to move out of the hotel uh, and the ballroom and attempt to to go somewhere else. Maybe somewhere that's not traditional. Like we had a, a client recently who uh, moved their event to an office building. And the foyer of this office building was absolutely gorgeous and fit the event that they wanted to do. And so they used it. And it was obviously cheaper, you know, than these event venues. So on the catering side, think about food trucks. I mean, we're seeing food trucks now at weddings, right? And so if your catering bill is large, and I'm not here to pick on any caterers because they're awesome, but, you know, when you think about the tables and the staff and everything else that goes along with it, just another thing that you could possibly consider, you know, move to stations from play to dinners. I mean, these, all, all these little things can, can definitely make a difference in what you're all spending. You know, we, um, we used to, to work with a, a client that had a very expensive golf event, and they've since changed it up the swag bags they were giving out were so expensive, the the profit per golfer at their event was significantly less. And as stuff gets more expensive, you know, they had to make an adjustment there. And they were terrified people would stop coming to their golf tournament because they weren't getting all this amazing stuff. And, you know, surprisingly, so people still came. Those are the areas where I would say, you know, definitely, you know, consider what you're spending. And then I would say, obviously, since I run a mobile bidding company, I would try to maybe spend more effort trying to figure out how to use the technology to drive more fundraising opportunities and revenue opportunities at your event, more so than just the cost.
1: Thanks, Jeff. Right. Tony, any tips for those ready to elevate their fundraising events but are concerned about the cost?
4: Yeah, sure. Some great points already. I think for me, um, one key thing here is thinking about your events portfolio across an annual cycle and trying to balance that portfolio out. So we talked a little bit about creating hybrid event experiences today. And actually hybrid can be quite costly, right? Because you're running an in-person experience alongside a virtual experience. A lot of people are put off by that expense because it, it does genuinely cost a lot more money. So think about balancing your portfolio out. So what I talk to my clients a lot about is see a hybrid portfolio as a portfolio across a year. We run a number of virtual event experiences alongside different events throughout the period of the year based on your audience insight that you have, complement them with some in-person events activity too. Not everything you run has to be hybrid and cost the world. You can run a balanced portfolio with some virtual, some in-person activity. The other thing I'd say is that not everything has to have the huge wow factor. Not everything has to utilize you know, incredibly expensive technology or the as, as Jeff mentioned, you know the most incredible venues. Sometimes, like Laura mentioned earlier on, simplicity is key. Um, There's a brilliant example from the British Red Cross when the Ukraine crisis escalated last year, or the year before, sorry. Um, They engaged their donors through a very cheap and effective event where they hosted virtual webinars on a weekly basis to their highest value donors, so people that were donated 100K plus to their cause. And the briefings were held just virtually on a weekly basis from the front line. So, they had members of the Red Cross team providing these daily briefings from Ukraine, engaging the donors around where the actual money was going to set towards that emergency appeal. Incredibly cost effective way to engage donors to a very easy event to host that didn't cost the world for them, but the return on investment was phenomenal. And I think, just finally, like connecting with your audience again, I spoke about a little bit earlier on, I spoke about lots today accessibility, inclusion, sustainability, some of these key topics that we're trying to crack and address. By focusing on some of that, keeping things simple and focusing on how to include more people in our events, reach new audiences, is going to create more profitable events for you. And essentially, by basically focusing on some of those absolute simple techniques to create more so unforgettable experiences, you're going to see much more profitable event at a low budget. You don't necessarily have to, as I say, have the huge wow factor. Focus on some of the things that get the experience right, like accessibility and inclusion. Make sure the right people are in the room are able to experience it in the way that they want to experience it. So those are the things I would focus on.
1: Wonderful. Thanks, Tony. All right, Lauren, what would you advise those for ready to improve their events while being mindful of expenses?
0: Uh Tony said it. Return on investment. Absolutely. And we're going back to this level of prioritizing again. At the end of the day, your your venue again, okay, you've, you've done it there every year, but, What's wrong with change for something for something cheaper? Is that really the biggest priority of of your event? Then coming down to your band. You could be paying thousands on a band. Did they bring in the bids? What did they do? Okay, they provide an entertainment. I'm not trying to take away from entertainment either, but do you need a 10-piece? Can you use a, can you use a singer? Can you use a duo instead? And I'm going to give our lovely George Franco a shout out now because he is also right, your auctioneer. Who should be the face of your event? Who is that MC? A lot of our auctioneers double up as entertainers and comedians anyway. They're fantastic at what they do and like building up the hype within the room. You don't need to pay someone else for that as well. You've got it in the package with your auctioneer. We have so many real-time examples of Someone using a board member or a very funny member of a supporter that they have got, but they are not trained auctioneers. They are not experienced in in what they are doing. So we've seen events go from raising twenty thousand with an everyday Joe doing their auction for them, and then two hundred thousand when they actually hire an auctioneer that knows what what they are doing. Like these people put a lot of time and effort into what they are doing. they do multiple events per week. How can you take away from them that they won't do a better job? So again, return on investment in what you are putting forward in the first place. Obviously, I'm a staffing company. So professional staff that know what they are doing. You've got all these wonderful volunteers that want to help you. Keep them in their area where they feel most comfortable. It's sometimes not behind a laptop or with an iPad in their face, they end up like a deer in headlights as soon as they can't quite manage something within the software that could be something so simple. By this point, you've got a backlog of your line of guests that may be standing out either in the boiling heat or in the freezing cold that just want to get inside. Right? They just want to be at their seat. They're here because they want to give. So again, anything we can do to supplement this streamlined process of getting people in. You as the organizer, again, talking about wearing multiple hats, where's your skill set? You should be there greeting your donors, making sure that they know why they're here, that they are feeling welcome. I don't know about you, but if I feel like, say I was standing in a long line and nobody even mentioned it or acknowledged, but if someone came over and said, do apologize. Give us five more minutes. We're just sorting this out. Of course, I respond, Okay, oh, yes, yes no, no problem at all. Like keeping everyone happy, acknowledging if there is a situation, but keeping the crowds moving. Again, the simpler way to give. Don't overcomplicate things, especially like your check-in and don't put too much strain on, on your own staff. Hire professionals, let everyone do what they know they can do best, and there is your return on investment for for your event overall.
1: Wonderful. Thanks, Lauren. All right. I see that we already have a few questions from our audience, so we're officially opening our Q&A portion, and we'll start off with a question here from Michelle. She said, we're planning three major events. The one in January is 800 plus people, but tends to be more community building than make a lot of money. How many silent auction items or other ideas for engagement? They are a chatty crowd and tend to be older. Um, Jeff, I know you answered this, but did you want to share to the rest of the um, audience as well?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's not a great formula Everybody probably has one they like to share about how many items you need for how many bidders. You know, when you're describing this event, it sounds like you've got a fairly large audience, but they may not be fully engaged because the centerpiece of this is an option or a fundraiser. Maybe you estimate that maybe 100 or 200 of these 800 might be interested. I think you just need to kind of play some bets and see maybe put out 25 or 30 items and see how they go. The fact that it's a chatty crowd tells me that you're going to want to use technology because they're not going to be the type that are going to be willing to leave conversations to walk over to bid sheets to place bids. So, you know, I get it. They might be older, but you know, at the same time, I mean, these same older folks are ordering their coffee on their Starbucks app and they're depositing their checks on their banking app. So they shouldn't have a problem placing their bids on their bidding app.
1: Thanks, Jeff. Scott, anything you want to add to that?
3: Yeah, I mean, being in the item business, it's it's definitely an, an art versus science. There's rules of thumb. You know, like we typically like to see, you know, if there's 100 people, 25 items, which can be more or less than what should for these larger events. I think Jeff was right on. I think you start with maybe 25 to 50 items, but make sure they're just different kinds, different price points. I think the people make the mistake of, only relying on their donor donated items, which can be stuff out of their garage or gift baskets. And then it's a $10,000 trip to the Hampton. So there's really not much variety. And it can be underwhelming. And you end up bidding on like a corkscrew handmade or something. So you know, adding, you know, risk consignment items, obviously, that's something we do to really add a just a different level of engagement, make it more fun. And you know, this Again, just variety and different price points, different kinds of experiences, like driving in an indie car, those kinds of things that people can get done.
1: Thanks, Scott. Lauren, anything you want to add? Yeah, just building upon the types of silent
0: auction items, like we also know that it is really difficult to get. And like Scott just said, if something out of one of your donor's garages necessarily wants anymore, that's not going to be high net worth value in in the first place but going back to this like, with community building community and this whole shop local like, would it be an option to approach some of your local shops restaurants the independents that may also be struggling as well they might not be in a position to give but if you could say hey if i give you twenty dollars could you give me a fifty dollar voucher then maybe you're covering some costs For them, uh, at the same time, and again, return on investment, you're hoping that you're going to get at least 50% more on that voucher for the people that that are giving. And you're also going to promote these local communities as well that will then, in turn, hopefully promote you back. You know, if you can really get local resources on board with you as a small nonprofit, I think that's an ideal, ideal way forward. And then you're just building up this support over over the years, just an idea on a way to collect these these are smaller smaller items. And again, what what Scott said, like depending on the the demographic that that you have, some of these big wow art items they sell so well. So it's ideal to just throw a few in as well because it also. Um, build out the reputation of the nonprofit as well. Wow. How did they get those items? They must have some fantastic supporters out there. I've also heard, especially particularly along the lines of like the F1 experiences and the safaris, that the same buyers will go back and buy the same thing (laughs) the year after as well. So putting a real range in there is never a bad thing, but, but again, supporting local for these smaller ones, I would hugely advise.
1: Great insight, Lauren. Tony, anything else you want to add?
4: Yeah, listen, I can't talk about the the way you would run a silent auction quite like Jeff, Lauren, or or Scott can, but what I can speak about is engagement, which was part of that question, I think. And for me, this just goes back to the why. So essentially, it doesn't matter how many auction items you've got, how big your auction is, why should people donate? Why should people bid for those auction items? And that goes back to my kind of earlier points around storytelling and that storytelling can begin before people even arrive at your event through your pre-event communications. People shouldn't come to an event where there's an auction, not being prepared to donate, not being prepared to wanting to you know, offer some support to the charity or the not-for-profit that they're, that they're attending the event for. Warming people up is essential, telling them why it's so important, what's the impact of your donation on the night going to be. You can do that pre-event, you can absolutely do it on the night of the event. And you can continue it as long as you like after the event as well. So your post event comes. So focus on the why it's very simple, um, but tell people why they should be directing or support your is key.
1: That's wonderful. Thanks, Tony. All right. We're going to go ahead and answer the question from Genevieve. She said, half of our planning committee wants to go back to paper bidding sheets and half wants to stay with online bidding anyone going back to paper? Do you have any insights? I'm going to open this up to everyone. Yes, Kat or Jeff?
2: Yeah, I mean, we covered some of this on the just kind of on the back and forth already. But I mean, hands down, you will make less money on paper bid sheets than you will using technology. Now, obviously, you could restrict how much money you make using technology by trying to do auctions the same way you would do them on paper. Um, But again, this is where we go back and tell you that when you use technology, you need to also start to embrace the ways that that technology enables you to increase your revenue. So you should start your auction days in advance of your event. And you should also, this is kind of, I think, counterintuitive to some, but you should consider lowering your starting bids and definitely lowering your bid increments over what you're comfortable with. I mean, if you go back to the days of paper, You know, you might have an item that starts at $400, maybe it's worth 800 or something, and you're going to put a $50 bidding increment on it because you know that people are not going to get up out of their chair at a gala and walk out of the ballroom all the way over to a bid sheet to increase their bid by $5 and walk back. Okay. But if they're sitting there and they're on their phone and they can increase their bid by $5, they will. And what you do with smaller bid increments is you just invite more people to get involved. And at some point, And I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know exactly what that point is with everybody. But at some point, people's mindset shifts from, you know, how much money am I spending to I just want to win this item, they get competitive, we hear it all the time at the end of the night, oh, my God, I can't believe I spent that much money, but I had to win, I was not going to let bitter 123 beat me. Right. And you do that because, all they see is it's another five bucks or it's another $10 or it's another $15. It's not that it's another hundred. Um, so, you know, when you think about all of those different things that, that paper enforces on you, um, the time in which you're doing it, the place in which you're doing it, and also probably the way that you set it up in terms of starting bids and bid increments, you will generate less revenue. I don't think there's any
3: doubt of, with that anymore. That's great, Jeff. I mean, I I saw the same things happening so many auctions, and you look at the competitive aspect, and don't underestimate that part. Especially when you have like people that know each other, board members and whatnot, they want to win. It's and it becomes a game. I don't care how old you are, you want to win. You like to compete, and like you said, like when you on a paper sheet, you have to get out of your chair, go there, walk around, write in your name. Imagine how. How many bids can happen in those that amount of time with technology? So you have just hyper engagement. I mean, the number of bids can be 10x versus paper on one item, even. So definitely it's fun. Just have fun with it. Have
2: that. You're going to also, that competition you're describing, Scott, you're encouraging that more so because some people get intimidated if there's some sort of like physical presence between two competing bidders, right? You know, when I know you're bidding against me, you know, maybe I'm not, I don't want you to know I'm bidding against you. So I'm the one that doesn't necessarily want to show up at the bid sheet. Or maybe maybe there's somebody there who's doing the whole guard the bid sheet thing. I've seen that, okay? Or, you know, this this has happened, right? I mean, the nice thing about mobile bidding is it will make it fair. I mean, I've had uh, attendees at my old events steal bid sheets and then bring them back at the end of the night. You, I mean, Lorgan, you laugh, but you know that that has happened. And it's crazy. I mean, you look down like, how did this item only have three bids on it? Like, everything right. else has 30 or 40 bids on it. This item has three because they took it.
3: And it's been two hours. Yeah. So, all
2: the Thanks fun. for Thank sharing,
1: Jeff and Scott. All right. Unbelievably, the hour is going by so quickly. So, we're going to wrap up this portion of the panel so we can stick to our schedule. All right, I've had such a wonderful time here from our panelists today, and I'm hoping to get one final piece of insight from them all in this speed round. And Tony, I'll have you start us off. What do you see as the future of fundraising events and how can nonprofits get ahead today?
4: I'll keep it really quick. I think the future is around AI, how we can utilize it effectively to support the work that event professionals do so complementing our events fundraising by utilizing AI, sorry, um, not necessarily AI taking over everything
2: that we do.
1: Thanks, Tony. All right, Jeff, thoughts on the future and how to get ahead today?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'd take the same answer as Tony. I'd say data-driven strategy, which is not the case today. So it is AI. It's also accurate information you're collecting from donors, using technology to do that. And it's also analyzing, maybe AI helps here, but analyzing past results to drive future decisions.
1: Wonderful. Thanks, Jeff. Scott, what would you like to add? What do you see as the future of fundraising events and how to get ahead today?
3: Yeah, I've already just talked about AI, but uh, Tony and Jeff brought up great points. You know, millennials and Gen Z, those two generations comprise 50% of America. It's up, it's, they're enormous generations. And that is the future. It's the now even, and they're a highly philanthropic, 80% of them give to something whether it's buying a shirt that supports, uh, saves the animals, whatever it is. So using AI, whatever it is, hire younger people to understand what they want, how they want to be engaged with and how they donate is very different. So that's the future. Try to figure it out now before it's too late.
1: Fantastic. Thanks, Scott. All right, Lauren, final thoughts on uh, the future of fundraising events and how can nonprofits get ahead today?
0: Now I wouldn't have said this a week ago, but after my experience this last weekend and the discussion that's been going on in our chat, I still think there is more in the future for silent auction technology and hiring professional staff. You can achieve that by speaking to any of us here on, on this panel, we can put you in touch with the right people because surprisingly enough, we do know what we're talking about and it's based on experience, not just arrogance.
1: That's wonderful. Thanks Lauren. All right. And with that, we have reached the end of our panel. I want to give a big thank you to our panelists for sharing their insights today. And I also want to give a big thank you to our audience. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and um, thank you for your time. I hope you enjoyed yourself and learned something that will benefit the work that you do on a daily basis. Um, we do have a packed few months of panels ahead of us and I hope that you will join us for them. So keep an eye out on the Night website or in the Night LinkedIn page to make sure that you don't miss any of these. All right. I think that is it for me once again. Thank you all for joining us and have a nice rest of your day. Bye, everyone. Thank you.